0: Oh Father, as we come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word. We recognize that Your Word is all-sufficient. That it tells us everything that we need to know, not only about You, but about ourselves. And Father, if it were not for Your Word, revealing to us who we are apart from Your grace, we could never imagine. And so I pray, Lord, that as we go through Your Word today, we would see who we would be apart from Your grace. Teach us to hate and turn from our sin. Teach us, O Lord, to to mourn over our own sin. And teach us, O Lord, to look to Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. as you guys probably know, on the first Sunday of every month, we do a psalm. And we've been doing this ever since we started our our study in John, uh, just the first Sunday, having uh, one foot in the Old Testament, so to speak. Uh, We've been going through psalms. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 53. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, this amazing psalm today. And when I say amazing, I mean, this is one of my favorite psalms uh, because it's one of those psalms that does show us exactly who we are, exactly who we would be if God's grace did not change us. Uh, so this is a very, very important psalm uh, for our street preachers. I imagine this is a psalm that you could preach all day long out on the streets. Um, Dale Moody was another person in history who would often preach on the streets. He was a well-known preacher and evangelist in the 19th century, uh, and he very often preached uh, outdoors uh, in the open air, but he was also known for, uh, for preaching in churches, and he would draw very large crowds. But the story is told of how the, there was a time when Moody was preaching only to have an atheist, uh, while he was preaching, try to disrupt what he was doing. Uh, the atheist took a piece of paper and wrote the word fool, folded it up uh, on, a, on this piece of paper and handed it to an usher, urging the usher to bring it up to D.L. Moody immediately, saying that it was an important message that could not wait. And so as the usher handed this note to Moody, Moody paused for a moment to, uh, from his preaching to open it and read it, only to see that the only word written on this piece of paper was fool and so he looked up into the gathering of people and saw the atheists in the back waving at him and without skipping a beat moody said this he said quote a most remarkable thing has just occurred many times i have received a letter in which the sender has forgotten to sign his name but this is the first time anyone has signed his name but forgot to write the letter (laughs) (End quote The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And those are the words that the psalm that we come to today will be starting out with. As such, Moody's response, I believe, was yeah, it was maybe snarky, but I also think it was probably pretty appropriate. Uh, I wish I was that quick on my feet. Uh, You've probably heard me say that when biblical authors want to emphasize something, uh, they will repeat it. They'll repeat what they have written. Uh, R.C. Sproul once said this, he said, there is only one attribute of God that is magnified in Scripture to the third degree of repetition. He is holy, holy, holy. End quote. Of course, that was from his book, uh, The Holiness of God. But his point was that the word holy was written three times kind of as a way of of underlining it or putting it in bold font. Uh, And and we see this throughout Scripture. We see this done throughout Scripture. Uh, For example, when Jesus wanted to emphasize something, when He really wanted to drive a point home and make sure that people were paying attention, He'd say something like, truly, truly, I say unto you, or verily, verily, I say to you today, uh, or or something like that. But the verily, verily, or the, the truly, truly was to say, hey, this is... This is really important, so you want to pay attention so he would repeat the word. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, uh, you're introduced to the theme of the book immediately when you read vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's like you can't miss it because it's put in bold. It's put in big headlines as if but by repetition. See, in our day and age, when we want to underscore something when we want to emphasize something, we we underline it, uh, we'll put it in bold, we'll put it in italic, maybe we'll, we'll highlight it in a different color, you know, maybe you type in in all caps. I mean, there are all kinds of ways of showing that you're trying to emphasize something, but we all recognize something is emphasized by things like that, italic, bold, underlined, things like that. But in scripture, they didn't have those kinds of tools. And so to emphasize something, a word or statement will be repeated, and the general principle of interpretation, maybe not always the case, but generally speaking, the rule of interpretation is that the more times something is repeated, the more important it is. So, the psalm that we come to today is actually a perfect example of repetition now if you if you look down at your Bible uh, at psalm fifty three you won 't actually see any repetition in the six verses that we 're covering today but we, what we need to understand is that psalm fifty three repeats almost everything that psalm fourteen said, almost word for word. Uh, There are a couple minor changes, and we'll be sure to cover those changes as we look at uh, both of these Psalms today. Uh, Actually, back in the day, I think it was 2019, we were going to do, we came to Psalm 14, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to save this for April Fool's Day, because the next year, Sunday fell on April Fool's Day, and I thought, oh, that would be a perfect opportunity to preach Psalm 14. Then COVID-19 happened, and when April rolled around, we were doing a series about God's sovereignty over uh, suffering. So today we're going to be looking at both Psalm 53 and 14. But Psalm 14 isn't the only other place where we see the words that we find in Psalm 53. We also find them repeated in Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 to 12, where Paul describes the condition of the whole human race by nature, apart from God's redeeming, changing, transforming grace. Spurgeon uh, was well known for preaching the Psalms. He assumed that both Psalm 14 and 53 were written by David, and that Psalm 53 was simply rewritten much later on in his life. Uh, And so what he said uh, was this. He said, David, uh, after a long life, found men no better than they were in his youth. In other words, he could say the same thing In Psalm 14 and 53, 53 was say 30-40 years later because nothing changed. That was just the way men always were. Now I don't take that view necessarily. Uh, It's possible. But why do you suppose that the words of a psalm like this would be repeated in three separate places throughout Scripture by two or maybe three separate human authors? It's because what we read in this psalm, what we see in Psalm 53 is absolutely vital. It is crucial to understanding ourselves and to understanding why the world is the way it is. If we're going to understand the world around us rightly, we must understand psalms like this one that we're coming to today. If you don't understand the doctrine of total depravity, You won't be able to make sense of certain things that you see going on around you in the world on a daily basis. An idealistic, utopian view of humanity's condition will eventually, very quickly, fall apart. It will not suffice. Sin has corrupted every part of creation, and that includes every aspect of humanity. Everything that humanity does is corrupted to some degree by sin. So the point of this psalm and the point of this sermon is that the human race is totally depraved and headed for destruction and that when we see that, this should cause God's people to look to Christ for salvation, and to long for the day when God will separate us from the presence of sin once and for all. So let's just start with verse 1. Psalm 53 verse 1 says this. It says, "...for the choir director, according to Mahaloth, a maskil of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice." There is no one who does good. Psalm 14 begins with almost the exact same words. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. And there is no one who does good. Now as you may have noted the only difference is that psalm 14 says they have committed abominable deeds while psalm 53 says abominable injustice Uh, why the difference Uh, we don't know exactly but it's it's it seems that the author of psalm 53 who is probably uh david um but if the very least, was using David's words from Psalm 14, perhaps this this author witnessed a particular injustice and was applying David's words from Psalm 14 to that specific circumstance. So it was still written by David, but it was kind of paraphrased perhaps by somebody who witnessed some other specific instance. We're going to get to that when we get to verse 5. But with this one verse here, Psalm 53, verse 1, you could preach... Countless sermons. Because this one verse says so, so much. It says so many things that are so important for us to understand as we try to make sense of ourselves and to make sense of the world around us, which is just something that we naturally do. That's what kids do. Kids by nature, they're trying to figure out what's going on around them. They're trying to understand the world around them. We never stop doing that. We do that even as adults. And this one verse is a verse that we have to see everything around us through. It's like a lens that we must look through if we're going to truly see and understand what's going on around us. Now when David says, this is very important, when David says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, he's not referring to someone that we would refer to as an atheist. Uh, in David's time, it, was, it would have been very difficult to find an atheist. There were virtually none. It was a very, very unpopular view in his time, even among pagans. But Scripture... Uh, throughout Scripture, breaks all of humanity into two basic groups. The foolish and the wise. And the foolish have always, always outnumbered the wise by a long shot. So the fool isn't necessarily a person who denies intellectually or mentally that God exists, Rather, the fool is someone who lives their life as if God doesn't exist. So this isn't a person who is mentally lacking. No, this is a person who is morally lacking. And it's somebody who is spiritually dead. Notice that it's within his heart that the fool says this. See, the heart in Scripture, throughout Scripture, when it talks about the heart, the heart represents the center out of which all of our actions flow. It represents a person's will. It represents their, their mind, their emotions. And it includes all of these things. James Montgomery Boyce notes in his commentary that, quote, "...the fool is one who knows that God exists because of God's revelation of Himself in nature." but who suppresses that knowledge because he does not want to acknowledge God. To refuse to acknowledge God is not only the height of foolishness, but it is itself sinful, deeply, deeply sinful as well. And when we understand the fool in this manner, we see that this psalm has much to say to us as Christians, not only about the world around us, but about ourselves and who we would be apart from God's transforming grace. Let me ask you this. Do you think there's a chance that there are people out there who claim to be Christians, maybe they even go to church on a regular basis, who order their lives, who live their lives as if to say there is no God. Yes. They might even believe truly that God does exist, but if you put their lives under a magnifying glass, it's clear that they aren't living in accordance with what they profess to believe. Friends, I, I hate to say this, It breaks my heart to say this, but this is a problem in the church. Jesus promised there would be tares among the wheat. It's always been a pervasive problem in the church, and the terrible thing is even the world can see it, and they call it out for the hypocrisy that it is. See, as a pastor, people, people come to me. That, that's part of my job, to make myself available for people to come to for, for help. And I've had a lot of people, countless people, pour out some very deep and some very dark secrets with me in confidentiality. And let me say, you would never, you would never even begin to imagine what incredibly dark, dark sins some people who regularly attend church are capable of falling into, on on the basis of verses uh, such as First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine and ten which says this, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. On the basis of those verses, I've had to look people straight in the face, straight in the eye, and say to them, you do realize that this passage, these verses, mean that you have absolutely no basis of assurance that you're actually saved don't you see the thing is this these verses aren't talking about uh it's it's not saying that sinners won't inherit the kingdom of god no if that were the case then god would have the kingdom all to himself no the sins described here are all names given to various sinful lifestyles perpetual sins sins that characterize a person the apostle john says this in first john chapter 3 verse 9 he says no one who is born of sin uh, born of god practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of god now john's not saying that christians don't sin because back in chapter 1 verse 8 he says that the person who denies that they are in sin that they have sin is just deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. So John's not saying here that Christians don't sin. What he's saying is that they don't have sinful lifestyles. See, to practice sin, that's what he says here, no one who is born of God practices sin. To practice sin is completely different from committing sin. We all sin. But to practice sin means to never even attempt to turn from a given sin to the point that it is a lifestyle that isn't characterized by even one degree of repentance. If you profess to be a Christian and yet live a sinful lifestyle, let me be very, very candid with you. You are a fool. You are a fool. And I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to be unkind but to be loving. I say it in an an attempt to be loving. Hoping that you will open your eyes and see that you cannot profess with your lips to believe in Christ and yet live a sinful lifestyle as if God doesn't exist. I want what is best for you and the best thing for you is to realize that it is incredibly foolish to claim with your lips that you believe in God or to even believe in your mind that God really does exist and yet to live your life in a way that says either God doesn't exist or, well, maybe God exists but His commandments don't matter and God Himself doesn't matter. That is the height of folly my prayer is that that's not you. And yet, while it would sadden me if it described some of you, I've seen it enough and I've been surprised by it enough that it doesn't surprise me anymore. But you must know, as David knew, that this way of existing, as if God doesn't exist, will always result in a life that is immoral a life that is corrupt, a life that is unjust, which means to lack a sense of what is morally good or morally right versus what is morally evil. And these are qualities that characterize the way that unbelievers always live their lives. They always live as if they don't have a moral compass, a real moral compass. But the result of this is that there is none. None who does good. Not even one. This is what God sees when He looks down on humanity apart from His transforming grace. And it's as if He adds, there's not even one, in kind of a sense of disgust. Like, not even one? No, because a fool lives his life in a state of perpetual ignorance of things that he already instinctively knows to be true, but has suppressed in the wickedness of his own heart. A fool will ignore the facts and he lives as if he's his own God and he can set his moral compass for himself. Now take that statement, none does good, and apply it to salvation. Is it good for a person to believe in Christ? Yes. Do people do it? Yes. But it says none does good. How does that work? Well, uh, (laughs) what it means is that if you have come to Christ, it means that it's all of grace. It's not something that you have done on your own. What it means is that none of us can take credit for the fact that we have any faith in Christ. Because by nature, none does does good not even one so this proves this verse proves that we need someone outside of ourselves to change us to transform us so that we will do good and by God's grace that's exactly what God does we'll get more into that when we uh, get further into the psalm but for now we've seen that this world is basically just a, a, a ship of fools you might say And that in accordance with our own nature, the nature that we're born with, none does good. Not even one. This, of course, isn't the natural man's estimation of himself. But God is the only one whose judgments matter. So the psalm continues describing the natural man in verses 2-5. to Let's continue with those verses. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There. They were in great fear where no fear had been, for God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Now again, comparing this to Psalm 14, it's virtually identical with some minor differences. Uh, Psalm 14, verses 2-5 to says this, it says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Let's just go ahead and stop there because that's, the, that's where the similarities end. Then we get to, to the verses in Psalm 14 that are slightly different. But the first difference that we see here between these two Psalms is that Psalm 53 says God has looked down. Psalm 14 says the Lord has looked down. So, different words being used for God here. Uh, most commentators appear to have absolutely no idea for what the reason for this change is. And I don't know either, Uh, but I'm going to give you my best guess. My best guess is that uh, when you see the word, and it's in capital letters, the Lord, uh, that means Yahweh is the word that's being uh, used of God there. That's, of course, God's covenant Name, Whereas Elohim is the general word in Hebrew for God, which may indicate uh, that that one of these uh, psalms is addressed more specifically to those within Israel, whereas the other one is written uh, more generally about humanity in general outside of Israel. But the text doesn't give us uh, an explicit reason or explanation for why there is this difference. Uh, the second difference is that Psalm 53 says every one of them has turned aside, whereas Psalm 14 says uh, they have all turned aside. Again, this isn't a significant difference. It doesn't change anything, but it's a, it's a slight difference nonetheless. Uh, third, uh, Psalm 53 verse 4 says, have the workers of wickedness no knowledge, while Psalm 14 verse 4 says, do all the work- workers of wickedness not know So, obviously, these aren't significant differences. They're essentially saying the same thing, uh, just different tenses. Uh, But back to Psalm 53, verse 3, where God says, Every one of them has turned aside. If you are truly in Christ, you're the only kind of person in the world that this doesn't describe. Nevertheless, these verses do have much to teach us, much to say to us. It still has value for us. Uh, For the Christian, this psalm, as Matthew Henry noted in his commentary, is beneficial to the Christian for, quote, the increasing of our sorrow for sin and hatred of it, end quote. And so to that end, he makes uh, eight general uh, observations important observations about verses 2 through 6 and we're going to kind of follow along with with his observations the first one first this psalm makes note of the fact of sin The psalm notes the fact of sin. In other words, sin is a fact. It really exists. It is a real, objective thing. Nobody can rightly claim that sin does not exist because, as we've already noted, man's opinions mean absolutely nothing. God's judgments are the only ones that matter, and His judgments cannot be questioned. Because he knows all, he sees all, and it's impossible for him to lie. Now if he knows all, and if he sees all, and it's impossible for him to lie, what does that mean? It means that everything he says is true. And so if he says that he looks down from heaven and sees sin, none can question his judgments. So we see here that God has seen it. He has witnessed sin upon the earth for himself as he looks down from heaven. Now you and I, we might see some sin, but let me observe that generally speaking, we're far more inclined to take note of and to be bothered by our neighbor's sin than we are to take note of and be bothered by our own sin. And that's one of the effects of sin. It blinds us to its pervasiveness in our lives. And the result is that we often turn a blind eye to it, especially when that sin is ours. When we're confronted with the reality of sin, listen, there are really only three options. We can try to justify it as if it's not really sin. We can dismiss it as if it's understandable or excusable or we can repent of it and only one of these options is acceptable to god can you guess which one that is repentance is the only one that god honors only the fool will try to defend his sin or will try to justify his sin as if his sin is understandable or as if he didn't have any other option As long as God is reigning on the throne, the fool will only spin his wheels while going nowhere arguing with God on this. The wise will confess. The wise will repent. They will turn from their sin and will find God to be a God who is filled with grace and loving kindness toward His people. They'll find Him to be a God who loves to forgive more than we love to sin. Secondly, we see the fault of sin. Whose fault is it that we sin? As a man man tries to excuse his sin or minimize the sin of which he knows he's guilty, he reveals that he neither knows God nor loves God. Because if he knew God, he'd know that God can only speak the truth and that God knows all things perfectly. And if he loved God, he would spend his time hating his sin instead of trying to escape the fault of his sin. God describes all of humanity as having turned away or or turned aside, and the result is that humanity becomes workers of wickedness who consume God's people as casually as they consume bread. What we see here is that sin can be described in terms of the way that it relates to the individual, to God, and then to his neighbors, to others. Sin is a poison that harms the individual. Sin stores up God's wrath against those sins, and sin causes a man to sin against his neighbor. But when the verse says that all have turned aside, let's make sure we understand what that means. It doesn't mean that we're just like kind of cast to the side as if we're just morally neutral. As if our our relationship toward God by nature is neither here nor there. Not going toward Him. Not going against Him. Just kind of floating sideways. Inclined in neither direction. No, the implication of this word is that Humanity is now not only cast aside, but is anti-God. That all of humanity is opposed to God, going the opposite direction, turned away from God. This was not the case in the Garden of Eden when God created all things very good. In the Garden of Eden, man had no fallen nature. But after the fall, after Adam chose to sin, humanity's nature changed because Adam's nature changed. It fell. So that his nature was now not uh, not inclined to God, but was inclined away from God. His, his nature and God were like strong magnets that forced one another in the opposite direction. Have you ever done that with, with two magnets where you take them and you, you try, to, try to force them to touch each other, but the, the repulsive uh, force is so strong that you can't even make them connect? That's what our nature is with God. That's what it's like. That's exactly what it means when it says all have turned aside. It means that they are by nature pushed away from God so that they are now opposed to Him. And it's not that God has changed. It's that Adam's nature fell. Adam's nature changed. And that's the exact same nature that we are all born into even to this very day. And so there are spots in this, in this psalm where it's almost like David's trying to reason with these people, with the natural man. Will they continue to consume their neighbor to meet their own needs? instead of calling on God? Do they not understand that they are storing up the wrath of God against themselves? Don't they see that their end is destruction? No, they don't. They don't, and they don't care. Even if they do see, they they don't care if their end is destruction. They won't call on God. Why not? Because they'd rather live their lives as if He doesn't exist. They won't call on God because they're fools. Third, we see the fountain of sin. The fountain of sin. Why are men so incredibly evil? And the answer begins with understanding that the natural man is a fool who ignores and suppresses the truth about God. See, when we live in, in light of the truth about God, what, what do the wise do? They fear God. There is no wisdom and there is no moral goodness where there is no fear of God. And as you're going through Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 10 to 16, what you see is that it ends by declaring, They have no fear of God. And where there is no fear of God, there is no wisdom. Where there is no fear of God, there is no moral goodness. The natural man just lives as if he is his own moral compass, and thus he is his own God. He therefore doesn't allow the existence of an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God to affect his life in any way. James Boyce notes this. He says, quote, This is clearer in the Hebrew text than in the English translation, because in Hebrew, the phrase, there is, in the sentence, there is no God, is missing, and what the text actually says is just no God. That is, no God for me. Whether or not God exists, the fool does not act as if there is one. End quote. And this is the fountain from which all of man's troubles flow. It flows out of his complete rejection of God. It flows out of his complete rejection of God's standards. Man thus creates his own woes by proclaiming that good is evil, that evil is good, that light is darkness, that darkness is light, and so on and so forth. As if humanity has the authority, as if anyone has the authority to redefine what God has defined. No, friends, what God hath defined in His Word, no other has the authority to redefine, ever. And to even try to redefine what God has said and defined in His Word is to invite all sorts of troubles upon ourselves. And this is exactly what why we see so much chaos in the world today. Do you think there might be a correlation between fewer people going to church, fewer people being Christians, and chaos in the world increasing? Hmm, what an interesting PhD thesis that might be. But this is where it starts. It starts with understanding that all of our troubles flow from man's rejection of God and God's standards. Fourth, we see the folly of sin. Sin is, is folly, it 's foolishness, because God does exist. His existence isn 't affected in the least by somebody denying him. That doesn't change anything. Just like the reality of, of the sun 's existence isn't altered in the least bit by a man who denies that the sun exists, because well he 's chosen on his own to go live in a cave where he never sees the sun. No, the sun's still out there. He's just chosen to hide from it. Same thing with natural man and God. His denial of God's existence doesn't change the fact that God is there. Not only does his denial of God not affect the reality of God's existence, but the denial of the reality of God doesn't change the fact that one day that fool will have to stand before God in judgment and we'll have to give an account for every word and every deed he has done. Now if you are among those who have professed Christ and yet live your life, order your life as if he doesn't exist. What do you think you're going to say one day when you stand before him in judgment? What do you think you're going to say when you're confronted with the reality of your sin on that day? When God says, you know, you went to church, you heard my gospel preached week in and week out, and you still lived your life as if I don't exist and my commands don't matter, explain yourself. What do you think you're going to say on that day? If you're among those who don't make any profession in Christ, how will you explain yourself? Will you say, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really even know if you existed, God. Yeah, nice try. His Word attests to the reality that you do, but that you have intentionally suppressed the truth about Him in the unrighteousness of your own heart. And truthfully, how could you not know? How could anyone possibly not know that God exists? He has revealed Himself in creation. He has revealed Himself fully in Jesus Christ. And He has revealed Himself in His Word. How do you explain the fact that something, rather than nothing, exists? When from a purely naturalistic Uh, scientific perspective it's infinitely more likely that nothing would exist than that something would exist how do you explain the fact that there is intelligence where does that come from it doesn't come from a rock you can't take chemicals and put them together and all of a sudden you have intelligence that's not how it works have you how much time have you spent considering that how much time have you spent investigating The claims of Christ and the life of Christ. How much energy have you devoted to reading and making sense of and understanding His Word? No, to say I didn't know you really exist will not stand before Him on that one day. So what are you going to say to God? I didn't think any of it mattered all that much. Really? But but you thought that money, the money that you're going to lose one day when your time on earth is done... You can't say you didn't think it mattered all that much. So how can you think that God doesn't matter all that much? Sin is folly because God does exist. And what God has done and what God says in His Word matters more than anything else in the world. If you are devoted to anything lesser, that's idolatry. Sin is folly because God does exist. Fifth, we see the filth of sin. One of the things that happens when a person takes God's Word seriously is that they see how incredibly filthy, how incredibly revolting indeed sin is. And yet the fool always sees sin as something that is beautiful woe to those who call good evil and evil good but this is what humanity does isn't it i mean don't we see this all the time where humanity calls evil what is good and good what is evil god says that he is opposed to the proud and humanity says you know what we're going to do then we're going to dedicate an entire month to pride celebrating it Flaunting pride as if it's a good thing. This is exactly what happens when a news organization stands in front of a neighborhood that's being burned to the ground by riots and they call it a mostly peaceful protest. This is what happens when women demand the right to murder the unborn all in the name of health care. They'll say, my body, my choice, knowing that they are not murdering part of their own body but this is what sin always does. It always gets dressed up as something beautiful, as something worthy, as something noble, when the truth is that it is vile, that it is ugly, and that it is repulsive. This is why the Bible tells us there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death when you see sin for what it is, when you see its vile, disgusting nature, our comfort is restored by remembering and and rejoicing over the fact that by God's grace, this world is not our home. Praise be to God, therefore, not only that we've been freed from the penalty of sin, and not only that we've been set free from the power of sin, but that one day we'll be removed from the very presence of sin. When we consider how much sin is in the world, when we consider how much evil is in the world, don't we long for something better? Don't we long for the better city built by God that the saints of old longed for? We do. If we don't, we should. Sixth, we see the fruit of sin. See, sin, this is where sin is so foolish. Because the sinner who lives as if God doesn't exist also believes that sin is essentially inconsequential. That it doesn't really hurt anybody. What does doing this or doing that hurt anyway? No, sin is never inconsequential. And thus when we live amongst people who who live their lives, who order their lives as if God doesn't exist, we can expect to see those kinds of consequences play out before our very eyes. Think of it this way the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. That's what we call the fruit of the Spirit. So what is the fruit of sin? Well Take all those fruit of the Spirit and and turn them the other direction. And what do you get? You get things like hatred, anger, unhappiness, cruelty, selfishness, harshness, bitterness, impulsiveness, and so on and so forth. In other words, the same things that we see increasing in society around us. People complain about how we've never been so divided. Why do you think that might be? It's the fruit of Of sin. Basically, you get neighbor against neighbor where people don't care for one another, where people don't love one another. But, friends, let me tell you this that can't be said of God's people. That should never be said of God's people. We care what happens to others because others are image bearers. They are made in the image of God just like we are. And thus, we're willing to do what is right even if it doesn't benefit us. Even if it maybe costs us. Why? Because we don't live our lives as if God doesn't exist or doesn't care. Seventh, we see the fear and the shame that accompanies sin. Uh, Verse 5 seems to be referring to something specific, maybe an incident in which a great injustice was carried out by wicked men against God's people. It's impossible to know if that is an incident in Scripture or or which incident, if it is an incident in Scripture, that this is describing. But there are many examples of this happening in Scripture where, where the conscience is finally kind of catch up to, to those people, uh, the evildoer, and fill them with terror. Uh, think of what Jesus warned uh, of rebellious sinners on the day of judgment. He said this in Luke chapter twenty three thirty. He said, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Why would they say such a thing? Because their conscience finally caught up to them and they don't like the feeling of it and so they would rather face the most frightening the most terrible calamity imaginable than face God's judgment and they certainly have no interest in repenting and yet neither the hills nor the mountains will do their bidding Instead, they will testify of God's sovereign power over creation as these men and women are forced to give an account for the lives that they lived before the Lord. All seven of these observations about sin in this, in this psalm should serve as a wake-up call for you and for me. And they should cause us to grow in our sorrow toward and our hatred for the sin in our own lives but the psalm changes directions with verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. He wraps it up by saying, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores His captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And with this verse, all of humanity is described within this psalm. All of humanity. Now, if the preceding verses, if verses 1 to 5, don't describe you, this one does. But why? Why would this verse describe you? Do you think that God gave us this psalm in order that we could find a reason to boast in ourselves for being different than the world and, and, and choosing God when nobody around us has? Perish the thought. Perish the thought. Rather, what we see here is that there is no credit that we can take. His, his grace. He gave, it, he gave us this psalm in order to remind us of who we were and who we would be if it were not for the transforming, amazing grace of God. Never never forget friends the wonder the awe the amazement the beauty of God's transforming and redeeming grace as it has been applied to you not because you deserve it if we're talking about things that we deserve we're not talking about grace what we deserve is wrath wrath no, if you have received this gift of salvation if you are different from the world in that you have looked to God for salvation it's not your own doing because that would be good and none does good it is all of grace it is all of grace you can take no credit for being different than what these previous five verses describe. The glory and the praise is all God's. And when you realize that you have been a recipient of this amazing, transforming grace, what kind of response do you think that elicits from us? Nothing but thanksgiving is appropriate. Devotion. Thanksgiving. Love. The final observation that Matthew Henry offers is from this verse in which he observes what he calls the faith of the saints. And this is a significant contrast from the previous verses. We've totally changed directions here. The fool fears the day in which the salvation of Israel would come from Mount Zion, from the city of God. In the midst of this this world in which sin is so pervasive and fools are abounding in their sin, the saints do not look to the world for solutions to their problems, but they look upward at heaven and they wait for the salvation that comes from Zion. Now, of course, what the psalmist was looking forward to here, we look back on And we see that this longing for salvation was fulfilled when a baby was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. He was born as a king in a lowly estate. If, If foolishness corresponds with sinfulness and wisdom corresponds with godliness, then he was the wisest man who ever lived. For he not only lived in the light of the reality of God's existence and presence, but he never once sinned. Nevertheless, He died on a cross. He was buried, but He rose again on the third day from the dead. He has now ascended into heaven where He now reigns over His kingdom from the right hand of the Father. He will return one day to judge the living and the dead, which is just another way of saying that He will judge the wise, those who have looked to and trusted in Him for salvation And the foolish, those who have lived their lives as if God doesn't exist and as if their day of judgment will never come. The human race is totally depraved and headed for destruction, and this should cause God's people to look to Christ for salvation and to long for the day when God will separate us from the presence of sin and evil once and for all. Friends, if you have been living your life foolishly, as if God doesn't exist, as if God doesn't care about sin, as if His commandments don't matter, I implore you today in the name of Christ to repent and to believe on Christ and to know that the only cure, the only solution, the only way for you to find salvation from this condition in which sin permeates your life and controls your every action is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the wise, by grace, will do. And so I implore you today to live your life in light of the resurrection of Christ. To live your life in light of the reality that Christ is Lord. To live your life in light of the reality that He is coming back one day. And that there will be a day when we have to stand before Him. See, all of humanity breaks down into these Two categories, depending on how they respond to Jesus. The wise and the foolish. Which one will you choose to be? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is like a mirror of our souls. We thank You for even a psalm like this that shows us who we would be apart from Your redeeming, transforming grace. Thank You. Thank You that while we were unworthy, while we were enemies, You sent Your Son Christ to die for us. To bear the burden of sin, the wrath that You have towards sin in our place. Oh Father, help these truths to sink deeply, deeply into our hearts in order that they would be like a seed that produces fields of thanksgiving and praise within us. May these things characterize our lives in order that Christ would be glorified. And we pray this in His name for His glory. Amen.